Acts chapter 1. Today is the day that we're beginning the study of a great New Testament letter, the book of First Thessalonians. And really, if you're going to understand this book, you really need the backstory. You need to come to an understanding of the climate and the situation by which, in which this letter was written. And when you do, it's going to take on a completely new level of significance. And that's true of most things. Once you understand the history, the background, like things just take on a whole new level of meaning. Uh, about four years ago, I was with my family in Washington, D.C., and uh, we were spending a little bit of time. I, we've got some good friends there. He's a high-level government official. He uh, said, make sure you take in the free walking tours. And I'm thinking... Okay, usually you get what you pay for, you know, right? Free. And so I'm like, uh, are you sure? Yeah, you definitely need to do it. In fact, really, you make sure you do not miss the Lincoln assassination tour. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we looked it up online and sat, find out where it was. It's free, you know, so you just kind of show up there. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, Lincoln assassination, I, I kind of know that. I, I know that it happened kind of right at the end of the Civil War. Uh, John Wilkes Booth, uh, Ford Theater. He like, jumps out of the booth after he shoots Lincoln, breaks his leg. He runs off somehow, and he's eventually apprehended. I think he's shot by a Union soldier when they're hunting him down. I, I know the story, right? So we sign up for it. And uh, we, we show up there and, um, with all these others, and I'll tell you what. I'm thinking, this will be good for the kids. Whoa. Like, as, as this guy starts talking, and all you do is you walk within a one mile, and you go to all the different buildings. It, it starts right in front of the White House, and you just keep making your way around. And, and the story just became alive. Are you, do you know what happened? I mean, on that night, April 14th, 1865, there was a conspiracy. It was a three-pronged attack where they were literally all at the same time going to kill the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state. It was supposed to happen simultaneously. It was planned and they unveiled this attack that took place. It literally changed our nation. And to see it and to know the, under, the, the backstory on it changed my whole perception of that particular night. I became rather fascinated by it. And uh, later on, there was a book called Killing Lincoln, Bill O'Reilly, uh, Martin Digger. They write this book. I saw it on vacation. I bought it. I couldn't put it down because it's just filled with all these details, some of that weren't even covered on the tour. Because once you know the history of something, it, it takes on a whole new life. That's true of the book of First Thessalonians. Until you understand the history, what really took place, the environment in which this letter was written, and to the people and to whom it's written, uh, it's gonna, it, the book just becomes like, I'm familiar with a few verses and a few concepts. Today... I want to take you on a walking tour. And I want to take you back to about 2,000 years ago to the most pivotal event in human history. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he, he actually had entered into humanity through the incarnation. He lives this perfect life. He dies as a common criminal. He is, he's beaten and then he is executed. And yet, as he prophesied, he actually comes back to life. And for a period of 40 days, he makes all these appearances to his disciples. He actually is teaching them about the kingdom of God. And you'll recall in Matthew chapter 28, how Matthew 28 enter, uh, ends, beginning in verse 18, there is this great commission that Jesus gives. It's actually given to not only the disciples and the initial apostles, but it's, it's given to about 500 others at this time. 
And Jesus says this. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And they're looking at the one who is dead. They can see the holes in his hands. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And this is what I want you to do. He gives them this command. I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Plural. The triunity of God. And I want you to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. I want you to to bring them to the fullness of maturity. I want you to teach them everything that I've taught you. And I want you to know this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will see this done. I will actually be with you. I'll work in you. And when you come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, you see this final scene where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, can you imagine seeing him? Interfacing with him, hearing him, touching him. And he goes and he makes this statement in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He says, This is what I want you to do. I want you to follow this pattern. You are going to testify about me. That's what a witness does, right? A witness just tells the truth about what they see and their experiences. And he says, you are going to be my witnesses, and it's going to start in Jerusalem. And then it's going to move uh, not just from Jerusalem, but the whole southern part of Israel, which is referred to as Judea. But furthermore, you're going to be the witnesses that are going to take this even to, you might have missed this in verse 8, he, Samaria. <laughs> The Jews, they despised the Samaritans. They saw them as compromising, tainted. Because what had happened is many of the Jews had been deported by the Assyrians. And how the Assyrians, when they conquered, they brought in people from a foreign land. And they had you intermarry and intermix. And the Samaritans were Jewish people that had married all these just total pagans from who knows where. And they were kind of compromised in their religion. And the Jews wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus says... You're going to take my gospel. You're going to make disciples, even among the Samaritans. And notice what else he says in verse 8. And you're going to go even to the remotest part of the earth. You're going to go to places far, far from here. Far from anything familiar. And really, Acts 1.8 is the outline of the book of Acts. If you want to know the early history of the church how this mission of making disciples all started and what it looked like in the early church, you see it. Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7. And then chapter 8 through 931, you see the witness going out to Judea and Samaria. And then at Acts 932, throughout the rest of the book, you see the gospel going forth to all the aspects of the Roman Empire and perhaps even beyond. And it's really interesting. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles and disciples... They look very fearful. They're hiding. They've got the room locked. They're just huddled in a little room together. By the end of the book of Acts, you see that the gospel has gone forth throughout the empire. And there's boldness. And there's power. And there's strength. And there's conviction. And there's no compromise. And what, what happened? How does that happen? Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They were familiar with the Holy Spirit. In fact, they'd already experienced his, his spirit saving and guiding and teaching and, 
and miracle-working power. Remember, Jesus, when he was training his disciples, he actually commissioned them and at times gave them the ability to cast out demons and to heal, to authenticate they were his messengers with his gospel. But now, Jesus says, you're going to receive power. And he kept telling him about the receiving of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, who would always be with him, who the Spirit of God would do his work through them that they might be the witnesses to even the most remotest parts of the earth. And then, perhaps sometimes we forget this, but look at verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they're watching this. Jesus literally ascending, this cloud representing the the holiness and the presence of God. And verse 10, And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Here's these angels taking the form of men. And they said, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, He will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just like he promised, he's going to come. You see him ascending in a cloud. One day he is going to come in the cloud of God's holiness. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, verse 7, excuse me, what do you see? They say, behold, you will see him coming in the clouds. He is absolutely going to return. In the meantime, you are to fulfill this mission of making disciples of all the nations. So when you look at the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters really kind of look at uh, Peter and his ministry and how this gospel and this making disciples begins going out. And then really starting about chapter 13, it's uh, a major focus is on the apostle Paul. You may remember him. His name formerly was Saul. He's this great persecutor of the church, a, a hater of Christ. Collecting coats on when the first martyr, Stephen, dies. And God revolutionizes his life. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. And and it's very interesting. God sends one of his servants, a guy by the name of Ananias, to go and speak to this Saul, who now has been blinded by the Lord, knocked off his horse, and then kind of brought brought into this particular city. And the Lord said, this is what you tell, this is what's going to take place. Ananias, you go. Acts 9, verse 15, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And that's what you see. He receives a sight back, and there begins a series of missionary journeys that starts taking the gospel deep into the Roman Empire, to the remotest parts of the earth. At the end of Acts chapter 15, you have the second missionary journey. And if you want to take a look at it, Acts chapter 15, you can turn there. You have established uh, the team. You find Paul, and Paul makes a selection, and he chose, verse 40, Silas, and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. You've probably heard the name Silas, but uh, he's not quite as familiar as Paul. But this was a very significant leader. Uh, in the early church, when in Jerusalem, when they heard that God was bringing the gospel and Gentiles were believing, they needed their probably their best leaders, their best expositors of the word, the teachers. And guess who was selected? One of those guys, Silas. He's referred to as a prophet. When we hear the word prophet, we're all like, oh, telling the future, foretelling. Generally, prophecy in the scripture was foretelling, 
telling what had already been revealed, expounding upon it, helping people understand it. That's the primary role of a prophet. And that's the role that Silas had. And so they actually are doing this. And Silas is this kind of guy. He is a Jew. He is also a Roman citizen. He is just like Paul. Remember Paul? Paul was trained by one of the top rabbis in the country at the time. His name was Gamaliel. He is a Jew and he is a Roman citizen. That's gonna, that can take you a long ways if you're going to have a missionary journey deep into the Roman Empire. And so they go. And, and really, it's very interesting. In Acts chapter 16, the team continues to build because in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, they pick up a young man. He's somewhere between the ages of 18 and 20. He's like a high school kid that walks without compromise with Christ. He is actively serving. He is being used by God. Don't say like, don't think like, well, if you're a young person, you can't really be of use. Actually, if you want to see a young person that was used significantly and eventually becomes Paul's right-hand guy, his name is Timothy. He's so well-spoken of by the church there that Paul says, I want you to come with me. And he just builds that, that uh, mentoring relationship and just pours into him and invests in him. And so the team is going. In Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Really interesting. It changes from they to we. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did. In fact, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Most of the New Testament was written by Luke. Super humble guy. The only time he kind of refers to himself is when he switches from they to we. And as they're going in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Luke now becomes part of this team. And they are moving. Now, they want to, they kind of have plans for their ministry, but as would be with God, God may have different plans than us. And Paul receives a vision to come to Macedonia, a person calling out for help, come. And so they take that this is from God, and they actually do. And they make their appearance into a thoroughly pagan city. Very Roman city, the city of Philippi. It's the capital city. It's, it's really kind of referred to like Little Rome. It's, it's very much like the capital city of Rome. It is thoroughly pagan. Their architecture matches what you see in Rome. All the customs, they follow it. And so they make their appearance. And in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 14, you have the very first convert to Christ in modern Europe. A woman, a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. And so they begin this ministry. There's not many Jews there. It's a thoroughly pagan city. And, and to help you understand, what does it look like to bring the gospel to the remotest part of the earth? Well, just take a look. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 16. It happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us. Now, let me explain to you what's going on here. You need to understand that the Greek gods that had been adopted by the Romans, they thoroughly permeated the culture. And the idea of, of demonic representation actually was somewhat common. And that they, they thrived on this. And so they have this, there's this girl. She's a slave girl. She has the spirit of divination. Literally in the Greek, it reads, she has a python spirit. Let me help you understand what is taking place here. There is a Greek god, Apollo. And he killed a serpent that had the ability to predict the future, okay? And so what happened is, is that once he did, Apollo then could not only take the form of a serpent, but Apollo could also forecast the future. And so when someone was possessed by an evil force, and 
they, they could perhaps actually articulate things that would happen in the future, the Greeks and the Romans referred to them as having the spirit of, of Python, the spirit of a Python. It was an evil force. She wasn't, it wasn't fraudulent. She isn't insane. She is demonically possessed, and her masters are using and abusing her. They're making a lot of money off of her. They're advertising her and her services. And people will pay a lot of money to have understanding of what might happen, right? I mean, you don't have to drive very far and see people advertising what your horoscope read, right? How do those people stay in business? Because there's lots of people that like that kind of information. They don't care where it comes from, right? And that's exactly what you have here. But notice this particular girl. Uh, she's bringing her masters much profit by for, fortune-telling, but look at verse 17. There, she's following after Paul and us. You see that us? Luke is referring to all of us. And she kept crying out. She keeps saying this. She's crying this out. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She knows who they are. She's the slave of a demonic spirit. She knows these are slaves and servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way of salvation. And this apparently keeps going on. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. And it's like Paul, it says, he says in verse 18, but Paul was greatly annoyed. It's like, we don't need a demonic representation calling out what we're actually doing. He's obviously bothered that these people are profiting on this girl who's been enslaved by a demon. And so look what happens. Verse 18, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Whoa, this girl has now been freed. Freed by Christ. You would think that there, this would be, lead to celebration, elation, and paying a lot of attention to what these men had to say. But no. Look at verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market place before the authorities. And so they, they seize them. They bring them. They bring them before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, Roman cities had two magistrates. These were the judges. They made all the calls. You had a problem, a case, you bring it before the magistrates, they made the call. That was the judicial system. And so they bring Paul and Silas, and they bring them before the magistrates. And look at this. And they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. What? Throwing our city into confusion? They just emancipated a girl been demonically possessed. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. How you really can know God. And look at verse 21. And are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Is that what they're doing? No, but it doesn't matter. They're upset and they're mad. They want vengeance. And so they drag them before them. And look at this, verse 22, and the crowd, the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates, what are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to examine and give a trial. Do they? No. You want to see a picture of injustice? Here it is. And they, they just tear in their robes as a sign of indignation. They tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And we hear this, this, this tearing of robes off and being beaten with rods. And, and we're like, oh, okay, so they, they got beat. And, and we just leave it at that. And that's part of the problem. 
You and I oftentimes read the scriptures kind of with a sanitized uh, mindset. It's almost like we kind of slip back into flannel graph Jesus and the apostles, right? That's all cutesy and little lambs. But you have to understand that for the early church and for these missionaries, this meant great hostility, pain, suffering. They notice they, 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 they tear their clothes off them and they actually proceed to order them to be beaten with rods. This isn't like getting a spanking with a ping pong paddle or something like that. These are rods and they, they tie them together. And, and just for you to know, let me give you an example of what this looked like, this kind of flogging. Cicero gives an account of a man named Gaius Servilius. And he suffered an official beating from a Roman lictor. And so Cicero writes, this is what it looked like. For this man, he was beaten till finally the senior lictor, Sextius, took the butt end of his stick and began to strike the poor man violently across the eyes so that he fell helpless to the ground, his face and eyes streaming with blood. Even then, his assailants continued to rain blows on his prostrate body. Such was the treatment he then received. And having been carried off for dead at the time, very soon afterwards, he died. This is the kind of beating they received. And for Paul, you need to know that his commitment to Christ, the, the working of the Spirit in his life, he was beaten three times like this. Not only are they beaten with rods, and look at verse 23. When they had been struck with many blows, let that sink in. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And verse 24, And he, having received such a command, this jailer, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Stocks, what they are, they, they would take your legs and spread them as wide as possible and they'd lock you in. And it would be very painful and it'd create all sorts of cramping. And that's what they did. They had beaten them, they humiliated them, they put them in the heart of the prison and they locked them into stocks. How would you do in that setting? Follower of Jesus, beaten, maligned, lied about, no justice, and then locked in stocks? How would you respond? I want you to see the power of God working in individuals that are suffering. Look at verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Certainly they were singing some of the psalms, but likely they were also singing songs about Christ, like you find like in Colossians. And they are praying. It's likely they're, they're speaking the gospel to fellow prisoners. And notice the prisoners are listening to them. What kind of person is it that can take a beating like this and sing praises to God? I'll tell you what it is. It's someone who is filled with the Spirit of God. You see, their songs in the night are having great influence on the people that are listening. And, I, and I'll tell you this. When the praises of God are on our hearts, God revives our life. Going through difficulty? Praise Him. Look at this example. Well, this is all taking place. 
And then look at this. Suddenly, verse 26, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open and he drew a sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped because he knows that if you were a guard, a Roman guard, and your prisoner escapes, guess who dies? You do. And he's like, I, I can't face that. But then Paul cried out, verse 28, with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Get that picture of this Roman guard. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I've been listening, and you apparently have the answers. And look at there is the answer, verse 31. You want salvation? You want life? You want forgiveness of sins? You want to really know God? The answer is verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Anyone who can believe who Jesus is and what he's done. Slave, servant, people in your family. Believe and you shall be saved. And verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together. The word of the Lord, they kept explaining to him the significance of Jesus and who Jesus really is. And with all who were in the house, and he took them that very hour of the night, verse 33, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. Where did he get that idea? He and all his household. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. In verse 34, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so we see the church, it's emerging. The gospel is going forth. Discipleship is starting to take place. And you'll find, as you finish reading Acts chapter 16, once they discovered that these are Roman citizens, that they'd beaten and incarcerated without a trial, they wanted them out of there because this could be painful. The Roman government could come down on them. And so in Acts 16, verse 40, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and they departed. They really, you've got to get out of here. Just leave. And so they do. And where do they go? Well, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. They they come to Thessalonica. They're following the Ignatian Way. Okay, it was a very famous highway, and it will pass, and it comes into this all-important city of Thessalonica. It is a major port city. It is a major city of commercial activity, and they make their way to Thessalonica. I mean, you're probably familiar with it. Thessalonica is one of those cities that remain. It's a biblical site, but there is actually a thriving city there. In fact, uh, your tour guide is going to call it Thessaloniki, and even uh, in modern history. Like in World War I, Thessalonica was a very important Allied base. World War II, Thessalonica was taken over by the Germans. And what they did is the Germans actually rounded up all of the Jews that were living there. It was about 60,000, hauled them off, and they executed every single one of them. Today, it's a, a thriving city. The entire populace is about 1.1 million. And so... They come to Thessalonica. What, what is the city like? Okay. Well, it's, it's very much a Roman city in every respect. And let me help you understand what this looks like. You need to know the culture. For instance, sexual promiscuity, heterosexual and homosexual, widespread. In fact, 
if you weren't sexually promiscuous, it was almost seen as to be odd. You were like, that's no one lives like that. It was almost to be expected that you would live a life completely of, of filled with immorality. That's how they lived. And let me also help you understand the religious environment. It was, a, it was pluralistic in every respect. They had all these gods and goddesses they worshipped. And just like all the cities in Rome, this isn't just like Thessalonica. This is what it looked like in the remotest part of the earth. I mean, they were worshipping an array of cults. They took Greek deities. The Romans just adopted them, gave them new names. So there's Zeus, Asclepius, Aphrodite, Dionysus, and all these drunken revelries. You have Demeter. Some of these had a lot of sexual activity involved in their worship. It's thoroughly pagan. Um, it's interesting, in the excavations that take place in Thessalonica, they see a heavy Egyptian influence. Uh, there's a god, Serapis, who could like do healing things and perhaps even help you understand the future. Uh, they've, they've found uh, evidence, quite a bit of it, of inscriptions of worship to the god of Isis, the Egyptian god, goddess Isis. But the most popular, by far, cult in the city was Kabiris. And you know, I've never even heard of this. Well, Kabiris, um, let me give you just a little bit of a story on that. Uh, he is one of three brothers. Two of the brothers decide to kill Kabiris, their third brother, and they kill him by decapitating him. They take his head and they bury it at Mount Olympus, and he's buried with these weapons. And the thought was, is that Gabirus was going to come back, and he was going to rescue and be of great help to the people in Thessalonica, but he was going to be help to people generally everywhere. And I can't really get into the graphic detail, but uh, it it is symbolic sexually, and it's it, it's it's gross, and you're like, you got to be kidding. But they took all these male figures, and this was the primary worship in this city. This is the city in which they make their entrance. And not only have all these Greek gods and goddesses that are being worshipped, you have to know that in the Roman Empire at this time, if you're the emperor, you considered yourself to be a god and were worshipped as such. And that's exactly what you find. Uh, we've got Caesar making these decrees that you need to worship me. And so you enter into the city, and in the city there are also a significant number of Jews. There is a synagogue of Jews, and so according to Paul's custom, this is what he does. He actually goes, and he went to them for three Sabbaths, verse 2, and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So this is what Paul would do. He'd enter into the Sabbath, and as a visiting rabbi, one who is well-educated, he would not only have this, to get the opportunity to read the Scriptures, but to give the interpretation, to explain what you're hearing. And this is how the people learned. And so he did this for three weeks. He's explaining from the scriptures. He's showing them like Psalm 22, how it was predicted a thousand years prior to the coming of Christ, that there would be this Messiah who would literally be pierced through. Or Isaiah 53, that this the suffering Messiah would indeed suffer, but he would rise again. Or Zechariah 12, that he would come back from the dead, even though he'd been pierced through. We're going to one day look upon him. These are the things that he'd say. And notice what he says in verse 3. He was explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Super important. Christ had to suffer. The Jews, what kind of Messiah were they expecting? Um, a conqueror. They were like King David on steroids who was going to completely clean house with the Romans. But the scriptures point to a Messiah that will suffer on their behalf and will rise again from the dead. He must suffer because he's got to pay the sins, not only for the people of Israel, but for all people, so that God's plan of fulfillment to Israel and to the world will be fulfilled in his son. 
And by emphasizing suffering, it helps you understand you're going to walk with Jesus, you're probably going to suffer. It's not always going to be popular. It was their experience, and he's helping them understand this is the experience of Messiah. And notice what he said. This Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And verse 4, some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So we got God-fearing Greeks. These are people that had come out of pagan in paganism, believed in the one true God. When they hear the gospel, just like some of these Jews, they believe. Well, look at this. Verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. The Jews, they're like, we are, we're done with this. We're putting an end to it now. And they, Paul and Silas and company are staying there. Perhaps the early church is starting to meet in Jason's house. They literally start tearing his house down. They are searching thoroughly for Paul and Silas because they're going to end it now. And so they're looking to bring him out, bring these guys out, and to kill him. And so they can't find him. And look at this. Verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. These believers, this brand new infant church, these believers in Christ, they bring them before the city authorities, and they're shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is... Another king, Jesus. So what they're saying is that these are insurrectionists. You need to understand that what they're being charged, the allegations, this is probably the most serious crime. This is treason. Insurrection against Rome. Now, you need to understand, the church does not present political opposition to Caesar, but it holds to a higher authority. Okay? doesn't mean that church promotes disobedience. What it does is it promotes obedience to Christ first. He is Lord, right? Well, Caesar, let me help you understand what's going on here. He, Roman Caesars, like in, like in AD 11, uh, Caesar Augustus made an edict that you couldn't even prophesy through astrology the death of any Roman emperor or his children. In fact, they actually would put to death foreigners who even would try to do something like this. And in response to these decrees of worshiping God, the emperor as a god, certain cities would actually make these uh, decrees and pledge this commitment. So, for instance, there's an example uh, from Asia Minor, a particular city, and this is what they pledged. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants, throughout my life in word, deed, and thought that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body, nor soul, nor life, nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. And you see, these oaths help kind of promote the kind of violence that Paul and Silas are facing. I want you to know that there's nothing new under the sun. You want to throw a city into chaos? You want to riot? All you need to do is you just go find some mobsters that are looking for a fight. What you do is you twist the story, you omit some key facts, you express a lot of rage and passion, and then you encourage people to act out with indignity. Right? What does that sound like? That sounds like what's going on in some of our cities in our United States. Maybe they're reading their Bibles, huh? 
Because that's exactly what the Jews did. They incite this kind of rebellion. Facts, that's irrelevant. And so they're throwing the city into turmoil, and this is exactly how they're doing it. And look at verse 8. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And so they, they, they stir them up. They got them at, a, at an edge. And it's like, these guys are going to die. And so Jason steps in once again. Verse 9, and when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So Jason basically gives like what would be the equivalent of like a bond, a significant size of money to say they will move on. Okay? We, we're, we're not going to kill them. You just take my money and they'll move on. And so they do, Acts 17, verse 10, they do just that. Now, can a church really thrive in a climate like this? I mean, come on, think of it. Circumstances against uh, the actual, like Paul and Silas and his team being beaten, this just rampant paganism, hostility toward Christ. Can a church thrive in a chaotic and fallen climate? And the answer, absolutely yes. You want an example? You just look at the church of Thessalonica. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin studying this book. But really, for you to appreciate what is written, you need to know the back story. This is God at work. And I want you to know something. The miracle of the church reveals the greatness of God. There shouldn't be a church in Thessalonica, and there should have never been a letter, 1 Thessalonians, written. But that's, on a human standpoint, yeah, it shouldn't have happened. But guess what? God's in charge, and he's accomplishing his work. You see, the church is God's doing. It's about him, it's for him, it's in him, and it is through him. And I don't want you to miss the miracle of the church. Anytime you see a genuine, Christ-centered, disciple-making, God-loving, gospel-oriented church, if you ever see something like that, that is a miracle. It shouldn't happen from a human standpoint. You need to know that God is the God who is in charge. How do you follow Christ in a fallen world? Can you thrive in a world of spiritual and cultural chaos where there is widespread sexual immorality and promiscuity, where homosexuality is treated as normal, where you've got a justice system that sometimes fails, where mob rule influences government decisions for evil, where high-level government officials start acting like gods and the culture is pretty hostile to Christianity? Can a church thrive? And the answer is absolutely yes. And that's what we have in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Sound familiar? That's the team. When Paul eventually made his way to Corinth, Timothy brought back a report. This church that looked like it should die is thriving. And that's the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, Paul writes a letter to this church, affirming them, helping them understand and encouraging them. And we have the benefit of studying this letter. And I'll just say this. If there was ever a time that we needed to hear this book in our church and in this country, the time is now. Let's pray. Lord, this is a fascinating background. You've recorded this so that we'll learn, so that we'll understand that we're not alone that there have been parallels in the past and that you intend for your church to thrive. And God, we would want that for every church and especially our church. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's never trusted in Jesus and they finally understand, would they just simply pray with me and say, Lord, I, I turn from myself and my sin 
and I believe in Jesus, the King and Lord. Forgive me and lead me. And Lord, for all of us, would you accomplish your work in our church as we dive into this letter? Lord, may we be shaped by your spirit and the scriptures that we might be everything the church is designed to be. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.